Um, but there's an argument that AI will create more jobs than it takes away. Um, and that may not be proven. What's your take on that? So I think that uh, AI will create new kinds of jobs than the ones it kills. And these new kinds of jobs will require a much higher level of education uh, than the jobs it kills. So it's not going to be that the same people who lose the job will be the ones retrained into the new job. Uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the jobs killed by Amazon uh, were very different from the jobs created. Uh, and they were the jobs created are in big warehouses in some locations, whereas the job kills are scattered all over the place. So in AI, the same thing will happen. Even if uh, 100,000 jobs are killed and 100,000 jobs are created, there's a huge social disruption because of the, what I just said. But I don't think that the number of new jobs will be of the same quantity, the same numerical uh, value, because automation is making it easier for fewer machines to do the work of a large number of people. Uh, with the advancement of not only AI, but AI related fields like robotics, a lot of things are happening. So I, I would say that uh, the, when I look at reports uh, that say that AI will create more jobs than it will kill, they usually come from uh, McKinsey, which serves big corporate people, uh, World Economic Forum, which serves big corporate people, PricewaterhouseCooper, Ernst & Young. And when I look in the back, I, I look at the methodology the methodology says that they went and surveyed 200 largest corporate people in the world, 200 largest multinationals or so many multinationals of this country and that country. But nobody, none of those people have said that they went to the villages where most of the people in India work and, and looked at the migrant workers or looked at uh, you know, people of that strata in the United States. Nobody who's done this research has gone to the NGOs that serve you know, uh, the, the, the African-American and Latino communities in inner, inner cities in the United States that are poor, nobody has gone there to see what's the impact on them. You just go to corporate America in, 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 in New York City and California and a few places, and you get their consolidated view on what will happen, and their view is very different. So a top-down view of uh, the impact of AI is quite rosy. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a technologist by training. I am pro-technology. I'm not wanting to kill it or squash it, but I think there ought to be balance. There ought to be conversation. There ought to be social responsibility. Uh, certainly, AI is very good for treating people in, uh, in medical situations, in medic new medical breakthroughs, in agriculture, all kinds of good things. And in my book, in chapter one, I've listed a whole lot of great accomplishments that AI has, will continue having. But I feel as far as its adverse impacts are concerned, the AI industry has not gone to the places that are likely to be harmed the most, which are the poor countries in the world, the poor cities in one's own country, and also certain kind of industries and people with less education. They have not done a good job to go there and understand what the impact is with those people and try to do something about it. So it's a very kind of an elitist uh, it will be good for those, for some investors can make tons of money, and they already are. Uh, so I, no doubt there will be a thriving new economy and a new world order, but it's not going to be equal for everybody. And that's the key word there, equal or equity, that uh, AI and, and technology seems to be accelerating the flow of capital from the people who have less of it to the people who already have quite a bit of it. And to look at conversation that has been happening on a large scale uh, in the United States, but overflowing in, into the surrounding cultures, 
the Black Lives Matter movement has really created national conversation that's uh, penetrated to workplaces uh, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And although there is certainly polarization within the culture, there are a great many people now looking at how they can recognize bias and, and do better. So if some of those people are listening to this podcast and going, yep, I'm on board, Rajiv. I understand what you're saying. I see there's a problem. What do I do about it? So it depends on uh, the individual, what his capacity is, what his capabilities are. Uh, I, I'm writing a book to spread awareness and more conversation. Uh, what you could do about it is go to the events, the conferences, uh, wherever there are forums on AI and bring in more speakers, bring in people who are not producers and practitioners of AI, but who are representing the, the consumers and the people who are going to be impacted. Uh, we need to bring in more people from the social sciences, from the site, from psychology, from NGOs. Uh, we want to bring in people who represent uh, uh, the, the, the less developed economies, the non-West uh, Western economies. Uh, we want to bring in people who are minorities. So I think what you can do is to be is to for me as far as I'm concerned, uh, go to my website aiandpower.com www.aiandpower.com and register. There's a way to register yourself. Uh, enter your email ID. We'll make you part of the movement and keep you involved in all this. And and uh, shows like the one I'm on right now are amazing and wonderful opportunities for us to spread this awareness. As more people join and have a voice in this, uh, we we want to compel the AI powers to listen to us. Just like you know, climate change. There were these people who were putting out all that pro problem, but not willing to listen until there was enough uh, enough outcry from the public. I'm not looking for regulations to clamp down on these people, but I'm looking for responsible behavior and, I, and I'm looking for government. The governments need to be more educated. I would say among the different governments that I, I've looked at all their policies so far that are being debated, the EU has some interesting debates going on. They are kind of holding these companies accountable more than anyone else uh, and, and, and other countries need to join in. So uh, what the average viewer, average listener can do is uh, join our list, uh, be part of our mobilization. Uh, let's continue having more conversations like this and build the pressure. Mm. Now, looking at what might be the, some of the biggest engines <clears throat> behind this, uh, the, the cultural dynamics that are creating inequity and spreading AI and, and technology, then we have to look at the big corporations and maybe the uh, eventual battle won't be between the US and China, maybe it'll be between Google and Tencent. Um, but um, what, what, what sort of actions should uh, those companies, let's assume Western ones for now, the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, the Amazons, what kind of conversation should be happening in those those companies surrounding their ethical obligations with respect to the the factors you've outlined about their impact on um, uh, have not cultures around the world and and does that depend or to what extent does that depend on the company's uh, ethical standard itself if I just think about the ethical temperature of companies like Apple 
Google, Facebook. I, I come up with a different answer for each of them. They, they yes. don't feel the same. So what would you say, the, the, to what extent are you concerned about the rise of another one of those companies? Could that become the next East Indian company by itself? Yeah. So, you know, it's very interesting that Google had a position called AI ethics or AI and social responsibility, something like that. And there was this woman, a very brilliant woman from a minority background who was made in charge of this. And the purpose was they announced it with great fanfare. It didn't last long. They announced it with fanfare that this is an in-house position and she's going to be the conscience of uh, you know, Google and she's going to keep us honest and tell us what we are doing wrong and how our policies might be not correct for in, with respect to all of this bias. It was, I think a position was called AI and bias or something like that. And her job was the kind of keeper of this, uh, this, this information, this the monitoring. She was supposed to monitor and, and, and evaluate any practices that could be not very good for, for society. She got fired. Uh, she and got the, fired. You're referring within, to uh, Timnit Gebru there, right? Yes, and, 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 and I'm sure many of your viewers know this, but just to refresh their memory, she got fired a few weeks after she was hired because she wrote a very scathing review, but that's exactly what her job was. And so, you know, th this, is, this, is a, this is a very uh, a sad situation. Uh, so whether they are funding uh, a, a kind of an ethics organization outside, uh, giving them money, uh, uh, but those people know secretly that, you know, if you get out of line, they won't give you funding next year. So that it's a way to contain them or whether they're starting this kind of a thing in house, the, the amount of power they have is so huge. So I, I don't know if, uh, if self-regulation can be enough. I think certainly they need to be listening to people like me. I have had difficulty getting into these companies with my book. I mean, you would think that somebody who's writing about their industry, I have, I'm qualified to do so. I have, I've known this industry for a very long time and I put a lot of effort into it. Uh, you, would, you, would, you would expect that they would want to at least understand and listen where is this guy coming from. But so far it's been sort of like, you know, quietly reading and studying it, but not sort of engaging it. So I, I, I have that problem with the, with the big mighty AI companies so far. Uh, they, they want discussion up to a point. So for example, they will offer that uh, one way to keep privacy is to anonymize the database. So it will not say that this is about Peter and this is about Rajiv. It will just assign some kind of a number. Uh, this is not good enough because the issue is not that they know the, me my privacy uh, that for the benefit of divulging it to other people, uh, which would be uh, uh, you know, against my rights anyway, even under the current law. The point is that whatever, by whatever number they've de de designated me, they're learning my behavior pattern and that allows them to have an advantage in dealing with me. They're learning about the behavior model of people of my ethnicity, my kind of people, uh, you know, whatever community I may belong to. So they're training their algorithms to hack our minds, anticipate our behavior, sell us things. That advantage of training the algorithm doesn't go away by just keeping it anonymous. Another thing that they've offered is that in these developing countries, they'll locate the server in that country. So India feels very happy that, you know, foreign, foreign social media are, are agreeing to put all the servers in India, but where the server is located has nothing to do with who has access to it. I mean, if I am monitoring uh, your information around the clock, 
it doesn't matter if I put my server in your basement. The point is I have, I have access to it. It's the information that I have access to, not the physical location. And the information is codified in such a way, such, such a way the AI algorithm codifies that information such that the other person who, who may access it doesn't even know how to make sense of it. Only the one who knows the algorithm is able to make sense of it. The real trick is these algorithms are not transparent. They don't just give out the source code. They don't give out the actual logic, the actual mechanism of how this algorithm works. How does Facebook decide which post will be blocked, which will be boosted, on what criteria? So I just did a, a, a show called AI and Geopolitics. Uh, just uh, came out yesterday. And uh, uh, you know we got a notice from YouTube saying that because of the world politics, it has to be blocked because it interferes with elections. Now it has nothing to do with elections. We had one guy from Switzerland, one from Austria, uh, you know, one from India, and we are discussing my book. Uh, and it has nothing to do with US elections or anything on that sort. But their algorithm makes that kind of assumption. There is no transparency where, where uh, you know, they are held accountable for algorithmic bias. Right now, if you have algorithmic bias in uh, hiring people when the algorithm is screening people for jobs and it's biased against certain people or whatever kind of bias there may be, uh, you know, you can just, when we complain to Facebook or YouTube about some problem concerning our account, they, they come and say, hey, you know, the algorithm decided that I cannot help you. As if this algorithm is some kind of a deity and that is above all the responsibility and accountability. So they have to, they have to take responsibility for what they are doing, whether it's done directly by humans or whether it's done by machines on their behalf. Hmm. I'm, I'm just suddenly struck by how we are having this conversation about the uh, AI and the internet creating this inequity in, in the way people are treated. And, and yet, when it started, when the internet was commercialized around 1994, it was seen as this great equalizing force. I mean, this yes. conversation would have been unthinkable at that point because it was the age of, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And it, if you're from Baltimore or Bangalore, you look the same on the network. It should have resulted in this great equalization and yet K-shaped curves again. It, it's done that in some ways, like I can make micro loans to people in, in Africa at the click of a button, but then there's the whole conversation that we're having. And um, you mentioned in your book, you describe a battle between the metaphysics of consciousness and AI's reductionist challenge to spirituality. And, and we've been getting around the edges of this, I think, with the, the talk about the uh, cultural aspects of it, but that's pretty um, uh, demonstrative language. That's putting a stake in the ground here. Tell us what you mean by that. So, you know, I come from a tradition where uh, the, 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 the future evolution of humanity is through yoga, through meditation. And so you evolve your consciousness, you go within, uh, you achieve higher states of consciousness. So that is one camp, this, let's call it the spiritual camp. And there's a lot of uh, consciousness raising movements all over the world that espouse that from various faiths and so on. Now the, the, uh, the opposing camp, even before AI was uh, biological materialism, which said that, look, there is no such thing as a consciousness and all that as an as a, as a overriding principle. We're just biological machines and we are just physical matter. 
uh, when the matter, when the physical uh, organization of biology becomes very complex, we, we think we have a self and we have a, we are conscious and so on. But at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a soul or a spirit. It's just matter. And that's a materialistic camp that has existed. A lot of sciences in that area. So these two have been uh, competing uh, with each other. Uh, and the biologists have been uh, put on the spot. You, you guys have to explain the nature of consciousness. If we are only matter, how does consciousness emerge? And they've come up with various theories and, and so on. This debate is live. It's a very uh, uh, you know, prominent debate. I'm sure uh, your viewers are very familiar with it. Lots of action in this area. And it seems for, it seemed for the last 15, 20 years that the consciousness movement is kind of prevailing and moving ahead as more people have experiences, more people get into higher states through meditation and they have these experiences. So, so that movement has been doing well. Now comes AI. So AI works off of the materialistic model. It says that the brain is neural neurons in a certain way, a neural, neural network, and we can simulate and replicate it in software. Uh, your heart is a machine and we can replicate it. Your lungs, your, your pancreas, your liver, every, part, every biological entity is basically modeled. You can model it as an algorithm or as, a, as some kind of a computational device of the cell, how it works, the DNA, how it works. It's all, you know, procedural, just like software. And once you've decoded it and it in this reductionist manner, taken a system broken into parts, into smaller parts, into smaller parts, and each of them is described fully as some kind of a mechanistic behavior. Once you've done that, then you can replace these parts. You can reprogram them. You can get in and uh, uh, fix them, change them in their behavior. You can put in implants. So the reductionist model of biology and life uh, is getting a huge boost with AI because this, the success of AI, every time AI produces a product that makes you happy, that can uh, uh, you know, get rid of bipolar, that can solve depression problem, uh, that can give you an artificial view of uh, flying in the sky or virtual sex or going down Niagara Falls or whatever kind of an exciting uh, experience, uh, which is all virtual and, and uh, kind of augmented reality, every time it succeeds in that, and the more products come out, the more billionaires and trillionaire, trillion dollar market cap companies emerge on that, the more successful that materialistic model is. Because nothing, and this is the important point, nothing in that materialistic model of AI requires having any presence of consciousness. There is no role of consciousness in providing and developing an AI solution. So what it has done, is two parts of my life are in conflict. The part of my life, which is, uh, you know, a, a consciousness-oriented, yoga, meditation-oriented, spiritual person, that part, uh, uh, which I've espoused and pursued all my life, versus the AI person in me, which is what, what my former training was uh, as a computer scientist. So that has gone far away, far ahead. So these are the two in conflict, and I call it the battle for self. This is mm. the battle for it's a it's a it's a important battle because to the extent AI succeeds, the AI product person is going to say, "Why do you need to meditate? Those guys have taken twenty years to achieve a certain joy. I'll just give it to you with a click. You know, you you just put in this, you'll get some hormones, uh, you you'll get some mental uh, whatever stimulation, and you'll feel happy. So why do you need to do all this? So as we succumb to a mechanistic artificial gratification, uh, we become less human in my opinion, we become more like machines, uh, we become, uh, we are more able to quickly 
buy this, maybe you buy a streaming service 10 years from now, you buy a streaming service uh, at various levels of payment. And based on that, they will stream experiences to you. And, and these experiences could come through augmented reality or implants or whatever. Uh, so, you know, why would anybody want to uh, go and uh, meditate or, you know, uh, uh, enhance their spirituality, spiritual side or something when this is all mechanically manipulated? It's all machines anyway. And there are some smart people who can do it for you. So this is, the, if that's the future, then, you know, some people will say it's a brilliant future. It's a great future because you get rid of human beings being human because they got a lot of nuisance because they fall ill and we will make sure they won't fall ill and they commit crime. We'll make sure they don't commit crime. But you know, what happens is that you get rid of free will and you get rid of a lot of what we, what is, what it means to be human. So I, I have, I have trouble with that. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people are getting visions of the movie WALL-E and humans being carried around on uh, recliner chairs while they watch movies and we're taken care of in every respect and probably going, well, we're not there yet. And, but that, um, but what is happening now in, in the respect of what you were talking about is that the mechanistic view of the, the universe, the uh, scientific explanation for what surrounds us, which throughout history, the uh, science has always said, there is an explanation for this. We just haven't found it all out yet. It, it, is that AI seems to have created the atmosphere where we think, well, we've pretty much got it all down now. We just got to build it. Uh, and and that results in, in kind of this assumption that we've we've solved all of the, the problems. We just have to build a bigger AI. Um, and, and so, uh, I want to relate this now to what's what what we're currently experiencing. We've been talking again about the the future and the uh, when when the effects of what we're talking about become more blatant. Um, but that's by definition some distance in the future. It might be a little distance, but it's not now. Yes. And and yet AI is. Uh, having effects right now that just may be in ways that we're not noticing. How are we being unconsciously influenced by AI right now in, in, in ways that you've identified that matter in your book? Well, uh, you know, every time your, your facial recognition uh, is used to open your phone uh, or your thumbprint, uh, finger, fingerprint recognition, uh, all these are AI uh, techniques uh, in the, in, uh, you know, machines can recognize faces quicker, better, more accurately than I mean, humans. Uh, you could go through, a, 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 you can span, a scan a stadium and pick out a person uh, more accurately, whether it's dark or light or different conditions. If the guy has a beard or wearing glasses, you can still pick him out uh, by facial recognition. So, you know, there are things like that happening all the time. More and more traffic lights in the U.S. got a camera. Uh, and, and uh, you know, how much they're capturing, who is capturing. I have a friend in Texas whose software business, AI-based, is to supply uh, police stations uh, an analysis of all the social media buzz and facial recognition buzz. I don't know whether it's legal or whether he says he's got a few thousand so, uh, police stations as his clients, and he gives them a, a kind of an analysis of who are some troublemakers or who are using the kind of language that may be, uh, you know, suspicious, 
Uh, and if the police knows of some people that they think are suspicious, then he can keep an eye on them. So this, this kind of a monitoring is going on, but it's kind of very quiet. I know in Florida, uh, one judge uh, said that any traffic violation that you cite based on camera, uh, you take the license plate number and you give a citation and you, because this guy was speeding through a light or whatever, is, is voided. I don't know whether how this matter was resolved, but a few years ago, a judge said that this, this kind of a ruling should be not allowed uh, because it's, it violates this guy's privacy. So there are some judges and some courts that have acted against this heavy-handed use of AI. Uh, so, but AI is kind of becoming more and more ambient. Uh, when you have Siri or Alexa listening to your voice, it's learning your accent, your voice, your lingo, what you do, how many voices in this family recognize each person's name and who they are and what time of day they come to which room they go. How, so it's kind of a eavesdropping and becoming very intelligent about you. So all that is AI. It's, AI is not, imagine if uh, uh, everything is running on electricity and a person doesn't know electricity at all. He comes from another place where he doesn't understand it. He would not see electricity per se. He would just see lots of things functioning. And he wouldn't know, unless he's an engineer, he wouldn't know that they all use electricity. So AI is sort of like that. It's like electricity. It's not like AI per se, very explicitly. Certain companies are marketing AI per se. They are in that business. But a lot of AI is sort of hidden in the way insurance policies are processed, the way bank loans are cleared, the way jobs uh, indeed processes job applications, dating services use AI to match people. Uh, you know, the, the law enforcement, the crime pe uh, kind of people, they look at uh, AI. Defense, the government looks at AI. AI is in the weapons. Uh, uh, the weapons being built are, are AI. Driverless cars, which are uh, on their way. So AI is sort of embedded uh, in a lot of things that are already part of society. Uh, and and uh, this is happening at a frightening rate. Uh, many people, in fact, when I wrote this book, so many of my friends said, why are you writing this book? I don't know any AI, nothing happening to me. I don't see it, I'm, you know, kind of that sort of thing. They don't realize that Facebook is run on algorithms and so is Twitter and so is uh, YouTube and so are all these. They are, they are not, it's not like a bunch of human beings making every kind of decision about, about you and what to send you and uh, what to think of you. The, the, the decisions are made by algorithms and these algorithms learn from the big data and they become smarter and smarter. And so interacting with us on social media are algorithms and behind the algorithms is machine learning and that is based, that is AI. Mm -hmm. And behind that is the big data, which is fueling all this, that's the raw material. At the top are some people who are making policy decisions on what to allow, what not to allow as a matter of policy, but it's this giant machine which is carrying out those policies. So AI is already here. Well, Rajiv, it's a wonderful conversation. It's an important one. I am sorry it has to come to a close now, maybe not forever. Uh, artificial intelligence and the future of power, five battlegrounds. Rajiv Malhotra, how should people uh, get in touch with you, find your book, follow what you're doing. So it's available on Amazon everywhere and other places. You just go and look for Rajiv Malhotra and uh, artificial intelligence and the future of power. But if you have any difficulty or in any case, I would like, love you to go to my website, www.aiandpower.com. And there you should please register and be join our list. 
Uh, and you can look at many, many videos, uh, maybe 30 of them we've done with various panelists and debates and discussions. Uh, there are excerpts from the book, table of contents, and certainly you can hit buy and you'll be sent to Amazon uh, and you can, you can buy this book there. I would love to uh, have to hear from people. I would love to have you read and review the book, write reviews, send us links and join our, join our list and uh, stay in touch. Fantastic. Thank you again. Rajiv. And thank you very much, Peter. I've really enjoyed it. You have a really sharp, hard-hitting, you know, probing uh, approach. It's my first experience on your show, and I must say that it's been delightful. And hopefully not the last. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much.